Welcome back to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. This is Juan Zarati. Very happy to have you back and more excited to have with me Chip Ponce, Fin President, and Eric Lorber, Senior Associate at Fin, two of the great sanctions money laundering experts in the world, certainly two close friends and colleagues. We are going to talk about the state of Russia sanctions. And this is an important time given that the U.S. Senate has passed a new Russia sanctions bill. So we want to take time to explain what that's about. We want to hear from Chip and Eric about their recent testimony before the Senate on Russia sanctions, which laid the groundwork for that legislation. And then we want to talk about what's next. What are the complications? What are the implications for what we're seeing coming out of Congress and certainly the debate here in the United States on sanctions? So gentlemen, welcome. It's good to see you both. Thanks so much, Juan. It's great to be here. Chip, it's always great to be with you. Eric, Juan, what a pleasure to be with you both and uh, be back at FinCast. Uh, listeners, we hope you are enjoying the series. Uh, this is part of, a, of an ongoing series, as you know, to talk about timely issues. And no other issue is more timely than the new Russia sanctions bill. Uh, passed 92 to 7 out of the Senate. Um, for those who don't follow U.S. politics, uh, U.S. sanctions votes tend to be quite bipartisan and quite overwhelming, as we saw a 97 to 2 vote uh, before the Senate to pass new Russia sanctions legislation to tighten sanctions in a number of ways. Um, to level set, Eric, why don't we give the listeners a sense of uh, what the state of Russia and Ukraine sanctions look like, uh, and then uh, an outline of what the new bill uh, proposes to do. Again, the bill is not yet signed into law, hasn't passed through the House as of the taping of this podcast, uh, but what we're uh, seeing is no doubt a movement toward greater and tighter sanctions on Russia. Eric, what do you think? Absolutely. Thanks, Juan. Um, and I think the best way to describe the current state of Russia sanctions before this bill is that uh, the U.S. sanctions and the EU sanctions program on Russia is one of the most extensive that we currently have in place. Um, the sanctions are uh, sectoral in nature, meaning they target specific sectors of the Russian economy with transaction prohibitions. So for example, if you're a US bank, you can't um, offer debt over 30 days maturity uh, to certain Russian financial institutions, as an example. The sanctions are also um, targeted at individuals. So there are uh, what are called SDN designations, especially designated national designations. Um, against a wide range of individuals um, who have been involved in destabilizing activity in Ukraine um, and Crimea, um, as well as uh, cyber-related sanctions that have been imposed under a separate authority targeting individuals and entities uh, that were deemed to be responsible for um, uh, attacks on the U.S. Democratic election last year in the lead-up to the presidential election. And then finally, um, there is a full embargo that the United States has uh, put into place on Crimea, the, the, the jurisdiction that Russia annexed um, in, 20, in 2014, uh, basically, which prohibits um, U.S. persons from doing any transactions, providing any goods or services to that territory. So in terms of complexity, the U.S. sanctions program on Russia is one of the most complex uh, that we currently have in place. There is a parallel EU program, uh, which is similar. There are a couple differences in regulations here and there, and a couple differences in who's actually designated here and there. But overall, um, it matches up very well. I should also say that there is a secondary sanctions component uh, to the Russia program, 
There's authority on the books for secondary sanctions, meaning that the United States can target non-U.S. persons for doing transactions in Russia. Uh, but to date, that has not yet been uh, utilized uh, by either the Obama administration or the Trump administration. Yeah. And Eric, before we get into the new legislation, I want to bring Chip into this. Um, but obviously, putting this in context, there's there's a political context to this discussion, given uh, the the Senate, Senate intel uh, investigation, the House intel investigation, now the special investigator, Bob Mueller, looking at the issue of uh, not just the, the Russian hack, but potential collusion, criminal activity tied to that. So all of this happens in, in a political context. And Chip, with respect to Russian activity, as Eric laid out, that relates not just to activity in Ukraine, but also cyber activity, uh, even human rights-related uh, issues. The Magnitsky Act is a, is a case in point of legislation pointed at Russian human rights violations as a part of the sanctions regime. Can you give the listeners just a sense of kind of the tableau of, of, of issues at play when we're thinking about sanctions uh, on Russia? Thanks, Juan. Yeah, and, and, and before I do that, let me just uh, um, acknowledge what an encyclopedia Eric Lorber is. Uh, I can't think of anybody better to be having a sanctions-centric podcast with than Eric. Um, our listeners should know that Eric is uh, not only a phenomenal expert on Russia sanctions, but on uh, sanctions writ large, and has been a key trainer in the global banking environment on uh, how to uh, explain and ultimately implement uh, sanctions in an operationally meaningful, uh, effective, and sustainable way. So um, wonderful to have that expertise here on the podcast and focusing on um, an area that uh, Eric and I, as you mentioned, have both testified in front of the Senate Banking Committee on. Uh, the, the threat environment, I, I think, is the right place to start. Um, looking at the context of uh, these recent sanctions developments that I'm sure Eric will, will run through in detail, um, it's important to remember why we're doing this and the multiplicity of concerns that have emerged with respect to Russian state behavior. Uh, clearly, um, the sanctions that Eric has outlined have focused, for the most part, on uh, collective security threats that Russian government actions uh, have represented uh, in Eastern Europe. They're, they're not new. Uh, there, there was the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Um, that has been referenced and is on the minds of many in the Senate um, that were behind uh, the recent bill that we'll, we'll get into. Um, there uh, has been, obviously, the destabilization and continuing destabilizing activities in Ukraine. Uh, Eric mentioned the annexation of Crimea. There has been uh, an ongoing uh, difficulty, I think, in, in understanding um, and uh, working with and against Russian interests in Syria to try to bring some sort of sanity and resolution to that nightmare of, uh, of a conflict. Uh, and, and, and that backdrop uh, was before we even got to the election that you're referencing, Juan, where obviously <clears throat> there is uh, an incredible focus on uh, interference by the Russian government in the political processes of the United States and the presidential election. And so, even recently <clears throat> in France as well. Yeah, and, and, and in other parts of Europe yeah, of that, uh, <clears throat> again, were <clears throat> part of the, the focus and concern of, of the U.S. Congress. So that threat environment is extraordinarily complicated, and uh, uh, in addition to being complicated, is uh, in the minds of some of our best foreign policy and diplomatic experience uh, is, is paramount to um, U.S. national security interests. 
in the hearing uh, where I was testifying, fortunate fortunate enough to testify next to Ambassador Burns, a, a longstanding uh, career uh, diplomat and well-respected former ambassador to Russia. Yeah, Nick Burns um, now at uh, the Harvard Kennedy School, great, great scholar, great uh, diplomat. And fantastic to be with him on that panel. Uh, open, opened the hearing by um, unequivocally stating that, in his mind, the Russian government, not the Russian people, but the Russian government is the greatest threat to U.S. national security interests in the world today. Uh, that's, that's a heck of a provocative statement given other areas of concern, but it's one that's important to put on the table because while I think some may debate that, <clears throat> the fact is that there is a growing sense of urgency and agreement around, around that statement for uh, the various uh, reasons that I've outlined. So that has shaped what has been um, uh, an unusual, if not unique, bipartisan approach these days um, to that threat in a way that has led to uh, the, the new draft legislation that Eric will talk about. And I, and I also think it, it bears mentioning, and before we talk about the new legislation, maybe talking about the European component, but uh, the, the, the question as to what level of threat and risk Russia represents to Europe, which is important in the context of what European sanctions look like. Uh, do, they, do they parallel neatly with the U.S.? Is there divergence? Is there a weakening of sanctions uh, from a European perspective? All of which is important as it appears Russia continues to push the boundaries, push, pushes against NATO, be, uh, continues to be provocative in the cyber domain, engages in hybrid warfare that uh, we don't have time to talk about on this podcast. But all of that implicates not just, Chip, to your point, U.S. national security, but also European security. Eric, can you level set just quickly as to what the European sanctions regime looks like um, and how that is playing out um, in, in, uh, in recent weeks in terms of uh, the threat coming from Russia? Yeah, absolutely, Juan. So the EU program, broadly speaking, parallels um, the U.S. program. They have a designation list in the same way the United States does. Uh, they also have sectoral sanctions restrictions um, in the same way the United States does. As I mentioned, there are certain people, certain entities, individuals, who they have on their designation list that we do not have and that we have on our designation list that they do not have. So there is some discrepancy there. The major elements um, of discrepancy uh, between the two programs, frankly, relate to um, certain energy uh, related transactions. And in general, the Europeans have been far less willing and frankly have pushed the U.S. to be far less aggressive in targeting um, Russian energy companies, and in particular, gas coming out of Russia, um, in large part because that is, to a degree, what Europe relies on as its primary energy or one of its primary energy imports. Yeah, you have Europe, deep European energy dependencies on uh, Russian supplies as well as infrastructure. Which, which plays a part in the limits of, of how far the Europeans are willing to go, the concerns about economic blowback, even Russian bite back. Exactly. And so we'll get into this in a little bit um, in, in terms of what the new legislation proposes. But one of the key elements of the new legislation, which I know is of concern to some European leaders and capitals, is that it allows for um, sanctions imposition related to gas pipelines, and in particular, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, which would be a key um, mechanism for delivering um, energy resources into Europe. And so while that 
provision of the new act is discretionary, meaning the president does not have to impose sanctions on entities uh, involved in uh, the development of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, the fact that the sanction that the bill gives him the authority to do so has certainly rattled um, uh, European capitals. The one other thing I think which is really important to keep in mind here in terms of the distinction between um, the European and the U.S. sanctions programs uh, is the extent to which Europe is more exposed um, economically to Russia, mm -hmm. and that has led to different legal differences. So, for example, um, if you're a, a, a European incorporated company and your parent company is Rosneft, right, the, the, the large energy company based in Russia, you are actually technically not subject to uh, EU sectoral sanctions, even though you're maybe wholly owned or controlled by um, an SSI designated entity, an EU sectorally designated entity. And the reason for that legal difference, it's not the case in the United States, the reason for that legal difference is frankly the EU wanted to protect companies that were inside the EU. They didn't want the sanctions, the ramping up, to have too negative an impact on the European domestic, on European domestic economies. On subsidiaries operating in Europe, in Europe. That, that may happen to be controlled by exactly. a Russian entity. Uh, whereas under U.S. law, what you're saying is those subsidiaries would be subject to the SSI they restrictions. Are, correct. Right. Can, I, can I just add um, briefly, and I, I don't want to take us off because I know we want to get into the, the, to some of the specifics on the sanctions, but um, I, I do think uh, the context here, in addition to laying out what is clearly a, a diversified and uh, paramount threat to collective and national security interests, it's also a really complex one, which is what Eric's getting at. And, and this is also important for uh, listeners to understand, whether from a policy perspective or a compliance perspective, um, the complexity of our relationship with Russia is one that um, puts inordinate pressure on, on how we would craft sanctions to respond to what are clear threats. Uh, we rely, obviously, on, on the Russian government as a partner in collective security and, and many other arrangements, including with respect to Iran with respect to North Korea, with respect to counterproliferation, with respect to counterterrorism. Uh, these are areas where we have historically had a strong relationship with Russia, where, where we have personally um, engaged with counterparts and colleagues that are fully committed to um, a counterterrorism mission that they share with us, as an example. Um, how, how we maintain or at least coexist on areas of common interest like that and, and take advantage of where we do have good relationships while at the same time uh, protecting our national security from um, activity as, as brazen as interfering in our, in our, in our, politi in our politics and elections um, is, is a difficult walk, and, and that's the policy side. When you get to the sanctions, and what Eric uh, has pointed out that, that is critical, is um, doing this in a way that very clearly sets out the basis, the, the rationale of the sanctions, and the objectives that the sanctions programs, the various ones that we have in place, what those objectives are, is critical when you have a complex relationship like we do with Russia. It is, it's, it is crucial to understand what we are doing and why we are doing it, even as we must and should cooperate with a, with a Russian partner on issues like counterterrorism. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, Chip. And I think what you've just done is kind of level set as to why there are complexities in the design of sanctions programs. It's, you know, this is a G20 economy, a major economy. This isn't some isolated hermit kingdom that we're trying to isolate financially, economically. This is an intertwined uh, major economy. It's an energy giant. Um, it's a cyber power. It's a permanent member of the UN. It's a nuclear power. It's a military power. Um, it's important to counterterrorism, counterproliferation, 
um, dealing with narcotics, stability in places like Afghanistan. Um, and so absolutely right. It creates enormous complexity in how this plays out, especially with our European colleagues. The other area of complexity, it, it's, it's worth mentioning for the listeners before we get to the new legislation, is the overlap with other sanctions programs, right? So it's not just as if you have very neatly defined Russia-Ukraine sanctions, though Eric laid out what those look like. You have Russia implicated now, and we've seen recent designations from the U.S. Treasury, for example, in the North Korea sanctions program, or in the Syrian sanctions program, or in the context of transnational organized crime, or in the cyber context, where you have distinct sanctions programs that implicate Russia precisely because of the nature of the threat uh, and activity that they're engaged in. And so that for the private sector, for public policy uh, individuals and, and, uh, and folks in government create additional complications with how you think about the design of sanctions. So Eric, can you, can you give the listeners kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of what the new Senate bill looks like and what it does to amplify sanctions? Yeah, absolutely, Juan. So I like to describe the Senate bill, the new sanctions in the Senate bill as falling into sort of three primary categories. The first primary category um, is the category of codifying what is already on the legal books in the United States uh, as for our authorities and designations related to Russia. So there are, um, I think now it's four executive orders um, relating to directly sanctioning Russia for its activities in Ukraine, Crimea, as well as um, for its uh, malicious cyber activity. The bill um, would codify those, put them into law, meaning that President Trump could not uh, pull down the executive orders, pull down the sanctions program without congressional approval, a specific vote of congressional approval or disapproval. Um, this is actually a fairly uh, significant development. We've anticipated this being a part of the bill for a long time. In the draft legislation that Chip and I were asked to review as part of our Senate testimony, uh, that draft legislation contained these provisions as well. But it, it in effect, uh, locks President Trump in into maintaining uh, the current status of U.S. sanctions on Russia, um, absent specific congressional authorization. And I think the reason for for this, these provisions was that there was fear, certainly, or concern, certainly, during the first few months of the Trump administration, that the president was was very, very proactively thinking about winding down the Russia sanctions program. And Congress takes a very different perspective on that program and on Russia activities. I think. Yeah, and important for the listeners to note because I think uh, you know those who don't know um, the sanctions world or how it works, they would assume that. All of the activity is happening out of the executive, out of what comes out of the White House or the U.S. Treasury or what the president says or does. But Congress has been asserting itself more and more in recent years, Sasada in the Iranian context, more and more in other sanctions uh, regimes to play a more central role in the decision around what sanctions are applied or unwound. And this is a, a great example of it in a very aggressive way. In a very aggressive way, exactly. So the first sort of bucket of sanctions is the codification. The second bucket um, is an expansion and a further development of what I referred to earlier as the sectoral sanctions. These are the sanctions that limit particular types of transactions with targeted Russian entities. So right now, um, those, uh, those sanctions target the Russian finance, Russian energy, energy and Russian defense sectors. The bill expands uh, those targets to include entities in the Russian mining um, uh, industries, for example. 
uh, state-owned enterprises in the Russian railway industries. So a couple new sectors are now subject to these secondary sanctions, which is interesting. In addition, um, the uh, scope um, and the depth of those uh, sectoral sanctions have also been increased. So for example, uh, the, the current restriction before the bill on US law, in US law, um, on uh, providing new debt to Russian financial institutions was 30 days. You could not provide new debt greater than 30 days uh, to Russian financial institutions. The new bill drops that to 14 days. And across the different sectoral sanctions, you're seeing a tightening that's meant to further squeeze uh, Russian economic sectors that we've really focused on since, uh, since 2014. Great summary, Eric. And it, it does seem like it's a broadening and deepening of the, of the sanctions in those particular ways. And then the third, the yeah. third benefit, if I may, um, yeah. is what I'll sort of classify as the expansion um, of additional sanctions. So outside the codification, outside the sectoral sanctions, you have a number of incredibly powerful proposed sanctions that the bill contains, which frankly would do significant damage to the Russian economy and also are the basis for causing some potential tensions with our European allies, um, particularly as they, they think about ramping up their own program. So for example, uh, the bill uh, has mandatory sanctions for um, any person that is engaged in a significant transaction with the Russian defense or intelligence sectors, meaning that if a European bank is providing financing to a Russian government agency, Russian military, for example, or helping provide that um, agency with, with IT information or um, goods or equipment, the United States is required under US law to designate that party. That's a fairly draconian um, and fairly harsh uh, uh, penalty. And it's going to be interesting to see both how that's implemented in practice uh, and also how the Europeans respond to that. Yeah, the European response to that may, may they may not want to have a parallel structure for, for having that kind of designation. I think that's right. Yeah. Chip, um, it's obvious that the Senate was listening to you and to Eric um, in the testimony and the run-up to the, the formulation of this bill. Um, can you kind of reflect on the bill, but but also give the listeners a sense of what you were uh, recommending to the Senate and you know how that may have impacted uh, the way that they've uh, constructed this new sanctions bill? Thanks, Juan. And again, excellent summary from Eric. Uh, and in doing this, I, I'm going to go back through some of what Eric's covered um, on what the objectives and the purpose looks like for each of those elements that Eric's described. It's really important for the listener to understand that we have certain sanctions programs, to your point earlier, Juan, that target illicit conduct per se, and where Russian actors are engaged in such conduct, be it uh, grand scale uh, um, uh, cyber uh, uh, crime or cyber cyber theft or, or, or cyber activity of, of criminal concern, or uh, be it transnational organized crime or, uh, or, or support for proliferation or whatever um, illicit activity independent of the Russian state, um, that group of uh, conduct that has been targeted by sanctions is an area uh, where there's continued interest in using those authorities to go after Russian illicit activity. Then there is specific targeted sanctions that have been, there are specific targeted sanctions that have been uh, developed and applied against specific <clears throat> types of Russian 
illicit activity, namely in Ukraine and with respect to corruption and with respect to destabilization and also um, with respect to influence on the Russian regime. That influence on the Russian regime is not necessarily illicit. It's a pressure point. The sectoral sanctions, very important to understand, these are entities that have not done anything wrong. They're entities that represent critical levers of economic pressure. And that's why there is uh, so much, I think, challenge for industry in implementing those sanctions because these are, these are in many ways, companies that are um, sort of household name transactions for global banks. Um, and, and that's what has made uh, sanctions an interesting, complex um, field in the context of responding to, uh, to, to, to the Russian threats. The recommendations that, that um, we offered, and, and I should say I offered, but I know Eric uh, had, had similar, in many ways, um, recommendations, um, focused first on um, understanding uh, uh, what illicit activity the Russian leadership may be engaged in, because the thought process is that we already have existing authorities to go after that illicit conduct, as we described earlier. Um, and by going after illicit conduct, we are not only uh, disrupting a regime that has clearly threatened our interests, but we're disrupting them because of conduct that's unacceptable to the Russians themselves. This is a country that has signed up, up for um, and is committed to global anti-money laundering standards. Um, it is a country that is a part of uh, um, principles that uh, do not um, condone uh, 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 undermining uh, effectively um, uh, other states uh, through the form of proliferation or through the form of, of uh, again, grand-scale corruption. So that's going to be an important um, data uh, uh, point that we don't have at the moment. So getting a better understanding on what illicit conduct the Russian regime may be engaged in and where assets of, uh, of con uh, that, assets that uh, stem from such illicit activity are held is, is really important. And that's a task force approach that we've recommended um, that the Senate uh, specifically authorize and, and support, uh, including financially as needed. A lot, so, a lot of this debate about, you know, how much money does Putin have? Where does he have it? Who, how, what does this crony network look like? Putin's kleptocracy, so to speak. You know, what, what does that look like? So that's, that's what you're, you're driving at, of course. Exactly. And I mean, I, I completely agree with Chip on this. And as, I, as he mentioned, our testimonies are very similar on this point. I mean, it raises the larger issue of sanctions can, can be effective. It's fine to designate people. That does have an impact. But so much of, of, of why sanctions can be impactful isn't just that designation. It's the follow-on work that's done afterwards. It's the implementation where you actually go through, you identify, you track, you seize the assets of these targeted individuals. And so there needs to be more work, including more resourcing done in this case in particular, to figure out where Putin and his cronies have their assets so that we can effectively target it, take it, and then put pressure on the regime. And part of it is understanding ownership and control and the, and the networks of, of business and influence that plays a part in how the Kremlin, Kremlin operates. Exactly. But that, that task force has to focus on something else that we also lack in terms of data, um, at least in, in, in my view, and, and I made this point to, uh, to the committee. Um, not only do we not have a full understanding of illicit activity that the Russian leadership may be involved in or where their assets may be, um, we, we don't necessarily have a, a clear understanding or as clear an understanding as, as we would like of where our, inter, where our interdependence lies. Um, where do we have exposure to Russian blowback? Where do our allies have exposure? The obvious answer is energy in Europe, but beyond that, where else do you have exposure? 
and where do they have exposure? And that becomes important then in turning to additional steps that we can take, which start to look at sectoral sanctions in the way that Eric has described. What other sectors should we be looking at? Should we be looking at mining? Should we, should we be looking at aerospace? Um, if so, what actors in those industries? And if we do go after specific actors in those industries, to what extent are we implicating uh, Western interests that may have uh, ties to those entities for all, for all the right reasons? So um, the, the lack of, of clarity with respect to not only um, illicit activity and assets held by the Russian regime, but also with respect to where key areas of interdependence um, and opportunity lie um, is, is part of um, the picture that we need to complete. It's not necessarily the same task force. We've had this conversation offline several times. Um, but it is a picture that that we would do well to uh, for ourselves to uh, to enhance. It's also a mapping of choke points and vulnerabilities. Eric, yeah, can I follow up on that? Because I think that's that's one hundred percent right. And I think that in the past month or so, we've seen a perfect example where this sort of unexpected potential blowback has occurred, and that's in the case of Venezuela. So a completely different situation. Yeah, let's um, talk about this. This is a very interesting yeah, nice pivot. case. Yeah, yeah, nice pivot. Thanks, thanks. And complication. So as a basic description to the, a factual description to the readers, obviously Venezuela is going through significant political turmoil right now. Um, and the Venezuelan state-owned oil company, PDVSA, uh, it seems to be on the verge of bankruptcy. As a bit of background, PDVSA is a 100% owner of Citgo. Citgo is a U.S.-based oil refiner. Um, and those who watch baseball will recognize the big Citgo sign uh, hovering over Fenway Park in Boston. Exactly. Um, so, in 2014, as a way to secure capital, um, uh, Pedavesa uh, took out a loan from, I think it was Rosneft, right? Rosneft is an SSI-designated entity, as we discussed, un under the sectoral sanctions program. And as collateral on that loan, um, Pedavesa offered 49% ownership of Citgo. Now, in the case of a default, Pedavesa default, which is probably a coin flip away at this point, likelihood. And if Rosneft purchased a couple more shares in some way of Citgo from Pedavesa, you could have a situation where Rosneft, an SSI designated entity, was a majority owner of Citgo, a U.S. oil refiner. Under U.S. law, automatically, that would make Citgo a designated party subject to SSI restrictions. You would have this crazy situation where Citgo would not be able to get debt financing over 30 days maturity or any equity because it was a prohibited party under US law. And so it's really useful to think about, frankly, the way that the, the advanced and sophisticated sanctions we've employed on Russia actually can have these unforeseen consequences um, that come back and, and in some ways pose significant challenges to the United States. And potential overlap with Venezuelan sanctions, which we've begun to apply more aggressively. Exactly. Yeah, and 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 also gives us the opportunity to learn from uh, from our partners. Um, you know, the Europeans. You mentioned the carve out on subsidiaries in Europe. I mean, we may be heading the same direction for the reasons that you've explained. Um, I want to complete more quickly. I'm sorry, just uh, the the map one on um, uh, recommendations here, because I think some of this follows into what Eric laid out as new components in the bill. Um, so. Again, we need a clear understanding of where illicit finance um, activity and assets are from the Russian regime. Got it. Two, we need, and that's for purposes of obviously accelerating targets um, of um, individuals, actors, including derivatives of those that have been designated for illicit conduct. Two, 
we need a better sense of uh, where um, choke, po choke points, opportunities, and vulnerabilities lie and the inter interdependence between the Russian economy and not only the U.S. economy, but that of our allies. And the purpose of that would be to um, intelligently and um, in as much uh, of an effective and targeted way ramp up uh, what are broad-based sectoral sanctions. Uh, and three is that in doing that, recognizing that there is going to be disparity, I think, between um, U.S. exposure and that of our allies, be prepared to do what Congress has done here, um, which is consider secondary sanctions that uh, puts the U.S. in the position of, of, um, of taking the heat, so to speak, on blowback, but also having the, um, having the relative independence to um, sanction uh, companies that are doing business in areas that uh, will effectively undermine the whole purpose of sectoral sanctions, which is to put pressure on the Russian economy. Where, where you choose to do that, I think, is an interesting question. And um, Eric's uh, description of looking at um, transactions or significant relationships with uh, the Russian intelligence or military um, industries makes a lot of sense, given um, the activities of concern uh, with, with cyber, with uh, the political process, and also in Ukraine. But they are not the only areas. And uh, clearly, you have, um, we've talked about this offline, um, a Russian government that has been uh, increasingly concerned about um, its own uh, balance of payments and, and reserves and has issued um, Russian sovereign debt um, as recently as last year in ways that raised real questions for U.S. financial institutions over the legitimacy of potentially participating in that issuance. Um, we know that informally Treasury reached out and, and advised that um, the street, Wall Street, not to participate in a direct issuance of uh, that debt. Um, but there was no ruling um, in any formal capacity. And we also know that eventually U.S. financial institutions were on the other side of secondary trades of, of, of that debt. Um, that is of keen interest to the Congress because they understand that that is money that will be used to recapitalize the very firms that we're targeting in sectoral sanctions. It's also a difficult move. So that was something I had suggested. It's not in the new legislation, but it's, it is a secondary sanctions type of um, opportunity to not only limit U.S. participation, but potentially that of others. Because if we're going to sit on the sidelines and others are going to get in in ways that undermine the very purpose of some of these sanctions, then the question is, why do we have the sanctions in the first instance? If we're going to maintain what is intended to put economic pressure, then to let that pressure go through opportunism by competitors in a global economy doesn't make a lot of sense. That's clearly a point of resonance among some in the Senate, and it could be a point of further action um, looking down the road. And I, th I think a big issue here, and we're going to close out the podcast here in just a, a minute, but a uh, big question is, um, you know, whether or not the Russians have effectively weathered the storm or whether what we're seeing is as the sanctions uh, continue to increase or, or grow in complexity and, and strength, uh, whether or not the Russian economy is going to suffer, especially as oil prices continue to stay at a relatively low level. Uh, which is incredibly important to the Russian economy and budget. Um, and so, you know, ha ha has Russia weathered the storm? Uh, have sanctions even been effective? That's perhaps a, a topic for another podcast, but that is fundamental to a lot of these debates. Eric, close us out with a, a sense of what are some of the complications or issues that are emerging from this new bill and from uh, a lot of the discussion that you and Chip have just had today? Yeah, absolutely, Juan. So I think sort of the the biggest sort of question marks, I think, that hang over uh, this new legislation, I think there are two. I think one is what's the future of this legislation within the United States? 
So for example, it's now past the Senate, it's now in the House of Representatives in Congress, they're going to have a chance to water it down, make it stronger, keep it the same. It's a little bit unknown exactly what they're planning to do with it. So we'll see what the actual and final um, form, uh, form it takes will be. And the second, of course, issue related directly to that um, is what President Trump decides to do with it. Now, it, it passed with 97 to 2, so it, it suggests that there is a veto-proof majority, meaning that even if he vetoes it, uh, the Senate can override that veto. Um, but even after it's passed, uh, you know, the question of how rigorously it's implemented um, becomes an open one as well. And I think that is going to be something to watch um, over the next couple of years, assuming it does come into to law. And I think the second big question, certainly based on our conversation, is what the European response is to it. Now, we, as again, as I said, we've, we've seen that the Europeans have apparently objected to particular provisions of it. It's unclear if those provisions will make it off of, you know, make it into the final bill or whether or not they'll be sort of left on the cutting room floor. Um, but this is going to be a situation where it's going to test the U.S. and EU coordination on the Russia program, because historically, uh, in this program in particular, we've moved in lockstep with the European Union. This bill is the first piece of legislation or the first real sanctions development that we've seen since 2014, which appears to move out of that lockstep. So we're going to need to keep close watch on what the Europeans are willing to do and what we can sort of you know, push them to do. Yeah, and it creates yet another example of a divergence potentially between the U.S. and, and Europe. You've seen that in the context of the Iranian uh, JCPOA, the, the nuclear agreement, where the, the unwinding and the, and the allowances are much more uh, open and liberal in Europe versus in the U.S., where uh, continued sanctions apply to U.S. persons and entities, frankly, putting U.S. businesses at a bit of a disadvantage, and, and you could have that play out in spades here in the Russian context. Chip, any closing thoughts on where you see this heading, complications, um, and, and, and any big issues to think about? Yeah, thanks, Juan. Just um, the, the issues that you raised in your, in your last um, uh, comment before uh, um, Eric's remarks. Um, effectiveness, is this working? Uh, fundamental to where we go from here with sanctions. And, and, and I do think um, there is consensus that uh, the Russian economy has suffered there is not necessarily attribution of that um, to sanctions, certainly not in its entirety, given given the oil um, uh, plunge of pricing um, that was simultaneous in many ways with the with the evolution of Russian sanctions of late. Um, but I do think people recognize that sanctions um, have become operationally effective tools; that they are no longer just political name and shame tools. That's obviously a critical. Um, takeaway for those that are in the business of finance and other positions of exposure potentially to to those sanctions, that these are operational and they must be implemented or there will be consequences um, in, in enforcement. Um, and the rationale for that is that they are deemed to be operationally effective, um, particularly when, when viewed as part of a broader strategy. The second point, um, and one that you, you are constantly reminding um, all of us of, and rightly so, that sanctions cannot exist in isolation, and so it has to be part of a broader plan. Um, I mentioned the need to cooperate with the Russians as our partners in a, in a number of, of fields. That continues. Um, and at the same time, uh, there, there has to be accountability for what um, Russian activity uh, has represented um, in recent years. Um, and the third point is, uh, to Eric's point of divergence um, between the U.S. and the EU, I think it's fundamental for the listeners to understand that um, whereas before the U.S., in my view, was politically wet ready 
and willing to let the Europeans drive on what was really a European focus around Ukraine and Crimea is no longer about that focus. That's additive, and it's created an environment, and it's created an experience of how to apply a complex set of sanctions. That is no longer the driver. The driver is a perceived and, and very real um, uh, sense that uh, the Russian government has targeted the U.S. government in a fundamentally destabilizing um, way that threatens the very core of our dem democratic process. That's not a European issue. That's a core American issue. And um, the bipartisan reaction of the Senate Banking Committee was extremely strong and heartfelt. And, and that, was a, that was a move that the Russian state has, has done that has, has put now the sanctions question clearly in the domain of U.S. national security interests and no longer collective security interests that is really one that the Europeans will be driving. And it has certainly uh, strengthened the sense in the Congress of the need to apply sanctions in a more aggressive way. And to your point, Chip, I think the cyber dimension, uh, what Russia has done to infiltrate systems to try to undermine democracies in the U.S., what appears to be in France as well, uh, potentially uh, not just in the past but uh, moving forward in Europe, may ultimately be uh, the linchpin of U.S.-EU cooperation where there may have been a sense of loosening of sanctions in the past based on uh, diplomatic inroads in the context of Ukraine or at least a lessening of political will. That, that political will may now be strengthened because of the cyber threat, and so it's a, it's a great point. I think at the end of the day, a, a key question here, not just is effectiveness, but um, the, the long-standing question that we've heard in the counterterrorism context of, tell me how this ends. Right, and how this plays out both diplomatically uh, and in the context of the economy is a key question. Uh, and at this point, I don't think we've got a lot of clarity as to how this ends. Um, and so that means you listeners have to keep paying attention. Uh, we hopefully will keep uh, trying to inform you uh, through not just this podcast, but through the work that is being done at Finn uh, and through the great work that Eric Lorber and Chip Ponce and others on our team are doing. Um, and we hope this uh, time together was, uh, was fruitful. Hopefully you got some insights as to what's happening in the state of Russia sanctions. And certainly we hope you're better informed. For Chip, uh, for Eric, uh, and for all of us at FinCast, thank you again. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll hear you next time. Thanks, Bye. Juan. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Juan. Take care.